by doomsday prophet Harold Camping when he predicted that Jesus would return for his church on May the 21st, 2011, and those left behind would be plunged into great tribulation. In fact, Camping's organization spent $100 million on billboards, warning people to sell all their belongings and to prepare for the coming apocalypse. Of course, May the 21st, 2011 came and went. Jesus didn't return, and his church remained earthbound. But that didn't deter Harold Camping. His reaction was to recalibrate. Camping claimed that his math was off. The real date was October the 21st. But of course, come October 22nd, once again, Camping had been proven wrong. Actually, over the course of his ministry, Harold Camping set a date for the rapture on 13 separate occasions. He was an incurable date setter. As they say, even a broken clock's right twice a day. But Harold Camping was 0 for 13. If the man proved anything, it was that he was a false prophet. Of course, what Camping did succeed in was to provide fodder for skeptics and for late-night talk show hosts. They mocked him and the idea of a rapture. Days after October 21st, after the date came and went, David Letterman had his top 10 Harold Camping excuses. Time Magazine named Camping one of its top 10 most popular Halloween costumes. One blogger wrote, October 21st, day for jokes, not judgment. Sadly, all Christians end up with a black eye whenever some knucklehead sets a date for the rapture. Any biblically literate person should have known that Harold Camping was off his rocker. For in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, none other than our Lord Jesus, speaking of his coming, told his disciples, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son but only the Father. Not even Jesus himself, while on earth, knew the exact day of his return. Evidently, all the date setters presume to know more than Jesus. I like the billboard that appeared right after the camping debacle. It read, That was awkward. <laughs> and indeed it was. I mean, come on, before you talk about Jesus' return, why not listen to Jesus? The date camping should have been concerned about was December the 15th, 2013. That's the day the man died and met Jesus face to face and had to answer for the deception that he had orchestrated. That was quite a meeting. And yet Harold Camping wasn't the first person to predict a date for the rapture and the coming judgment. Church history is full of similar culprits. Tragically, you can go all the way back to the early church, the second century A.D., to find ignorant people making the same kind of arrogant assumptions. It's interesting how our text begins, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Throughout Paul's letters, there were four subjects in which he encouraged us, encouraged us not to be ignorant. Romans 11 verse 25 tells us that Paul doesn't want us ignorant 
concerning God's plan for the Jews. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1 reads, Now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be ignorant. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8 exhorts us not to be ignorant of the role of suffering in the believer's life. And then here, don't be ignorant when it comes to the rapture. Don't be ill-informed about God's plan for Israel, spiritual gifts, the redeeming role of suffering, and the rapture. And yet, guess what? 2,000 years later, there's more ignorance about those four doctrines than any others in the New Testament. That's why I've entitled this morning's study, What's Up with the Rapture? For despite the bad PR in the media's sacrilegious scoffing and all the other ridicule that's been heaped on this doctrine down through the centuries, it is still a real event spoken of in the Scripture. It's going to happen. One day, Jesus is coming back to airlift his church from planet Earth. The key passages that deal with this subject are 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 3 and 4, Luke 17, John 14, even Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. But the most direct teaching is here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, when you study 1 Thessalonians, you'll notice that each of the chapters ends with a reference to the end of the age and to the coming of our Lord Jesus. Even in the first century, apparently, at the time of this writing, this was a hot topic. And yet today, I talk to Christians who consider rapture watching a distraction. It's seen as a peripheral issue, at best, at worst, an embarrassing hobby horse. But you need to know, the believers in Thessalonica and in the early church, they lived their lives on the edge of their seats. They lived in anticipation of the coming of Jesus. Did you know the New Testament speaks of the return of Jesus more than it does creation or the triune nature of God or even the resurrection? We're given far more detail in Scripture on Jesus' second coming than we are His first coming. The Christians of the early church lived as if they would not taste death. In John 14, Jesus says that He is the groom. The church is the bride. Jesus left to prepare her a place. And when he's finished, he's obligated himself to return for his bride and to escort her into his chambers. New Testament believers rightly understand that we aren't looking for the undertaker. We're looking for the upper taker. And that's how God wants every generation of Christians to live. As if we could be the last. A part of following Jesus is being ready for his soon return. Now Paul writes in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now realize Paul had spent just a few weeks in Thessalonica before his enemies had run him out of town. He must have taught them a cram course on Christianity. But there's only so much that a new believer can digest in a short period of time. That's why there were vital strategic beliefs and doctrines that Paul had not developed. Thus, when he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, he inquires about the church's spiritual health. 
And Timothy brings a report. He had detected some holes in their understanding of certain Bible doctrines. According to chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's goal was to fill up what was lacking in their faith. And one of the deficiencies in their knowledge involved Jesus' return, particularly what happens to believers who die before he comes back. Notice two important truths from verse 13. First, Paul speaks of the unbelieving pagan world of the first century as those who have no hope. You know, the Roman belief in the afterlife was vague at best. The better scenario in the minds of the heathen masses was that death was a transport into some kind of murky, shadowy, uncertain netherworld. Often a coin was placed in the mouth of a deceased person to supply them ferry passage over the river Styx. The poet wrote, Hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. The missing ingredient in Greco-Roman religion, the resurrection, is what became the linchpin for Christianity. Jesus' own resurrection spawned the belief that all who follow him will also be resurrected. The idea of the resurrection from the dead was foreign to the pagan mindset, but for the Christians, it became our foundation. You know, the Greeks had a flawed view of the human body. They considered it evil. They saw the body as the prison of the soul. Eternal bliss in the minds of the Greeks and Romans was the spirit's escape from the body, whereas Jesus dignified human anatomy. When he came to earth, God took for himself a human body. God bore a body. While among us, Jesus healed fevers and caused crippled legs to walk and fed hungry stomachs. He cared not only for people's souls, but for their bodies. For the Greeks, salvation was an escape from the body, whereas for the Christians, salvation involved the resurrection of the body. Jesus defeated mankind's arch enemy death. The power of our living Lord Jesus eventually redeems everything that sin has spoiled, including our worn out, old, broken down bodies. You know, the Greek philosophers, they were willing to concede the existence of a spirit world. But to overcome death in the real world was a miracle they refused to believe. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul was on Mars Hill, there in Athens, debating with the Greek philosophers, they tracked with his sermon until he mentioned the resurrection. That was just too much for their Greco-Roman pragmatism. Yet this is Christianity's central claim, the bold miracle that we call the resurrection. Notice a second significant truth here from verse 13. Dead believers were said to have fallen asleep. Their flesh and blood body will one day rise again, but for the moment the body is taking a nap. You remember this is how Jesus spoke of his friend Lazarus. In John chapter 11 verse 11 he said, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now remember, at the time, Lazarus had been dead for four days. The New Testament uses the idiom of sleep for deceased believers. Their psychological consciousness is suspended temporarily as if they were asleep. Did you know that the Latin word cemetery 
literally means dormitory or sleeping place. This is why bodies of Christian believers are buried to await the day when Jesus will resurrect us. The the Christian tradition of burial highlights the dignity that Jesus bestowed on the human body and affirms our hope in its resurrection. This is why when I die, I want to be buried. Kathy, though, has made it clear that she's going to have me cremated so she can save the money. I hope some of you guys are going to intervene, please. She says, I won't worry about it in any way because I'll have nothing to say about it. I won't even know, she said, and, and I suppose she's right. Actually, I don't believe there's anything wrong with being cremated. There's nothing unbiblical about cremating a loved one. It simply does in 20 minutes what nature accomplishes in 20 years. It just speeds up the process. We're still dust to dust. I mean, even if you're cremated and the ashes are spread out over the top of Stone Mountain, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will locate your molecules and resurrect your body. The bodies of all believers, cremated or not, are merely asleep. But what about our spirit? What happens to the spirit when the body dies? Does it sleep? Does it fall into some kind of suspended animation? Some denominations teach this sort of doctrine. They call it soul sleep. But verse 14 gives us the answer to this question. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. When Jesus returns, Paul says, he brings with him those whose bodies sleep in Jesus. When a believer dies, their spirit leaves their body but enters heaven. In Philippians 1, verse 23, when Paul spoke of his impending death, he said that he would love to depart and be with Christ. This is what Paul calls death in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When I die, my spirit immediately exits my body and goes to be with Jesus. Instantly, my sorrow turns to joy. It's not that my spirit snoozes, it's my body. My spirit is alive with Christ. This means that when Jesus returns, he's not coming for the spirits of those who died beforehand. They're already in heaven. When he returns, he brings their spirit with him to rejoin the body he resurrects at that time. Understand what the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the body meant to the early Christians. See, this was their moment of vindication. They had walked by faith in a visible world. They had trusted a God who they couldn't see. They had turned down pleasures for blessings that are intangible. They had endured persecution for an eternal reward. They were strangers in their own hometowns because they longed for a land that was spiritual. And everybody thought they were crazy. Realize the return of Jesus was their opportunity to prove their sanity. When Jesus returns, everyone will see that what they had lived for and believed in all along was true. You see, the rapture is the believer's moment of victory and vindication. And this was the question on the mind of the Thessalonians. If I die before the rapture, will I miss out on my day to finally shine? 
And Paul answers, absolutely not. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, those who are alive at the rapture have no advantage over those who died before it. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who died before the Lord's return, whose bodies are now asleep in the ground, they get a head start. They rise first. And why did the dead in Christ rise first? It's simple. They got six feet further to go. They get a head start. Imagine, though, all over the world, cemeteries vacated. Tombstones will topple over. Concrete vaults will open. Decomposed bodies will spring to life. Urns will empty. Try to envision this. Cremated ashes will suddenly rise from the ground. The molecules will all swirl together, and suddenly bodies will reassemble in midair. A metamorphosis will take place. A miracle of resurrection for this world to see. In that moment, every believer from every age will celebrate our victory day. And if this will be a thrill for the dead in Christ, imagine what it will be like for the believers who are alive on earth at the time. I hope you know there is a generation of Christians who will never die. When the Lord returns, he'll snatch away those who belong to him. Notice again verse 16. It's the rapture play by play. Paul tells us what will happen. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. First, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. This is not something he delegates to a representative or to an aide or his chauffeur. He doesn't have his chauffeur come and pick us up. He descends himself. According to John 14, Jesus left earth to prepare for us our eternal digs. He's been working on this thing for 2,000 years. What a place it must be. And he's going to return to bring us home. Jesus will return himself. Second, Paul says that Jesus descends with a shout. The word translated shout is a military term. It means to bark out an order. Like a drill sergeant barking to his troops. Or like the quarterback on the line of scrimmage. 898, blue 45. I still got it. Didn't think I could do that, did you? But when the rapture occurs, Jesus is going to bark out the snap count. And on hut, every Christian's corpse is going to rise from its grave. Nobody's going to be offsides, by the way, either. You recall in John chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus stood outside Lazarus' tomb and he shouted, Lazarus, come forth. It's been noted that if Jesus hadn't said Lazarus, every corpse in the graveyard would have sprung to their feet. Well, at the rapture of the church, Jesus will just leave off Lazarus. 
And he'll command the bodies of all the saints from all the ages to arise. Then third, we'll hear the voice of an archangel. Angels announced Jesus' first coming in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Apparently, their shouts will ring out around the world when Jesus returns for his church. And I believe these shouts will be audible. I'm expecting to know when the rapture occurs. As a matter of fact, I'm expecting to be in it. But I'm also going to hear Jesus shout. And I'm going to hear the voice of the archangel. Every year on the third Saturday in June, Spivey's Corner, North Carolina, hosts the National Hollering Contest. People come from all over the world to see who can holler the loudest. Promoters of the event say that hollering is the world's oldest form of communication. Well, on the day that Jesus returns for his church, trust me, he's going to win hands down. Suddenly, he's going to belt out a shout like a Marine. Hoorah! Or like a cowboy. Yeah! I don't know what it'll be, but you'll know. He'll holler loud enough for everyone on earth to hear. See, I personally think that this is going to be an emotional release for Jesus. All his pent-up feelings will suddenly be vented. I mean, think of it. The Lord Jesus, our Savior, loved us enough to die for us. But he hasn't had a chance yet to tell us face-to-face of that great love. And so when he gets the order to fetch his bride, trust me, he'll come hollering. Today, Christians are guided by the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. But in that day, we'll leave this earth to a shout to the voice of an archangel. And with the trumpet of God. In ancient times, trumpets were used to rally the troops and to assemble the community and to begin special festivities. A trumpet blast even announced the arrival of a special dignitary. And all these functions will be in operation with the rapture, when the rapture trumpet makes its sound. You know, every year the Jews celebrated the New Year feast with a blast of the trumpet. Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, begins when the priest blows the ram's horn or the shofar. In ancient times, it signaled to the workers in the fields that it was time to lay down their tools, to leave the harvest, and to come up to the temple to worship God. And that is exactly what the rapture is going to mean to us. When the trumpet of God sounds, Christianity's great harvest of souls will have ended. The church will enter the heavenly temple to worship Jesus forever. This morning, I brought with me a ram's horn. I got this when I was over in Israel. I like to buy ram's horns when I'm in Israel, shofars. And I've been practicing with it. I've gotten really pretty good uh, with it. Uh, uh, I've, got, I've become really quite an expert on the shofar, to be quite honest with you. And so I thought I would uh, give you just a little sample of uh, a shofar this morning. You, are, you, are you ready? You ready? <coughs> Here we go.
have it. Wow, that was pretty good. That was pretty good, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, so far, so far, so good. So, so yeah. God's a better trumpeter, trumpeter than I am, though, trust me. And when we hear the blast, guess what? We're going to blast off. I'll never forget a night many, many years ago. We were still meeting back over on Main Street in Stone Mountain. and We had just finished up a Bible study on, on prophecy. And we were waiting on the Lord. We were kind of all worshiping the Lord together. And I heard this whistle, this distant whistle. And I'll never forget, remember, this is it. I mean, I got so excited. That's the trumpet. I actually remember sitting there and, and waiting on my feet to leave the ground. And I actually looked down at my hands to see if they were dematerializing, you know, before my very eyes. And that's when I heard the rumbling of a train coming down the train track. And it was such, such a letdown. I was ready for liftoff. Instead, I got let down. But this is the anticipation that we need to always exhibit. Where every stray sound, where every unidentifiable noise causes us to think that we're about to see Jesus. As Horatio Bonar once put it, each night as I draw the curtains, I look up at the night sky and I say, perhaps tonight, Lord. And each morning when I see the dawning of a new day, I look out the window up at the sky and say, perhaps today, Lord. Perhaps tonight. Perhaps today. The Lord could come at any time. We should live in a state of constant expectancy. And notice what the Lord does when he, re when he returns. Notice he doesn't descend to the earth. One day he will. After the rapture, at the great tribulation, the world will be judged for its unbelief. And at its end, the end of the judgment, Jesus will return. He'll touch down on terra firma. He'll establish his kingdom and reign and rule over this earth. But at the rapture... He stops before he gets to the earth. He stops in the clouds. He comes in the clouds, we're told. And at that time, Jesus performs perhaps his greatest miracle. Verse 17 describes to us what happens. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The Greek word translated caught up is the word harpazo. You know, some skeptics like to point out that the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. And that's true unless you're reading a Latin Bible. For in Latin, harpazo gets translated raptus. Harpazo means to snatch away or to seize violently. Jesus will come in the clouds to snatch us up. We'll be here one second and we'll be gone the next. H have you ever seen a hesitating yo-yo? You ever seen a yo-yo on the end of the string? You know what the person has to do to get that yo-yo up? Just, just has to jerk one little finger. Just snap one little finger. And that yo-yo snaps back up to, to, to the hand. Well, Jesus is going to return us to himself. He's going to come in the clouds. And he's going to yank up all us yo-yos. That's what he's going to do. Just one little yank. Boom. We're going to be up. Or perhaps you've played jacks. You know, you bounce a rubber ball, and you see how many jacks you can pick up before you catch the ball. 
Well, Jesus is going to play jacks. He's going to snatch up the jacks and the jills and the sows and the sous. It'll be the invasion of the body snatcher. I used to think that the rapture would sort of be a slow liftoff. That we'd rise a few inches off the ground and then we'd sail past treetops and birds and dodge airplanes, you know, as we moved up through the clouds. But I no longer believe that's the way it's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on an incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Notice it all happens in the twinkling of an eye. We're transformed. We're snatched away in a nanosecond. And how fast is a twinkle? Well, you know, scientists have computed that the shutter speed of the human eye is one-fiftieth of a second. But that's just a blink. Jesus says we'll be transformed in a mere twinkle. I mean, the rapture is going to make Chick-fil-A drive through feel like an eternity, man. Star Trek may have really had it right. Beam me up, Jesus. That may just be how it happens. We'll dematerialize and then reappear in heaven, inhabiting perfect, glorified bodies. Reminds me of the old country fellow. He lived on the farm his whole life. One day he decided he and his family needed to visit the big city. And so the farmer, he dropped his wife off at the mall while he and his son went to check in at the hotel. Well, in the lobby, he saw this huge metal box. He had no idea that it was an elevator. But he was impressed by its size and he wondered what purpose it served. Well, soon an older female, she walked through the door into the box the door shut behind her. A minute or so later, the doors opened again, and out walked this young, beautiful blonde. Well, with a gleam in his eye, the young man told his son, he said, Son, stay right here. I'm going to run get your mother and run her through that thing. Well, at the rapture, all of our bodies will be changed. All of us. Hey, you and I will be the envy of the most skilled plastic surgeon. Our bodies will have an entirely new molecular structure. They'll be recognizable in appearance, but they'll be new and transformed and uncontaminated by sin. No longer will our bodies be subject to disease or limited by time and space. Our bodies will have the capability that Jesus had after he rose from the dead. These corruptible bodies will put on incorruptibility. Think of the effect, too, that the rapture will have on the world at large. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Imagine Christians all over the world will vanish. A mass exodus of believers. The saints will split. A secretary goes on an errand and never comes back. Four people get into the elevator and only three step off. Eleven football players break the huddle and only five people finish the play. I mean, I heard of a youth group once that staged a fake rapture to sort of fool their unsuspecting leader. They were at camp and the youth pastor had gone to run some errands. Well, when he returned, the place was vacated. 
piles of clothes were kind of scattered around as if the people who were wearing them had passed through and gone on to heaven. An empty motorboat was circling the lake. An unintended dinner was set up in the kitchen. And that's when a well-timed phone call added to the effect. The voice on the other end shouted, what's happening? Everybody's missing over here. The director later admitted, he said, wow, I really was shook up. One day, similar circumstances will be no joke. Think of the disasters that will be caused by unpiloted cars and trucks and planes. I always chuckle when I see one of those bumper stickers that says, warning, in case of the rapture, this car will be unmanned. But it'll be no laughing matter for those left on earth who are still reeling from panic and mayhem and disaster. I'm sure the scoffers will come up with all kinds of interesting explanations for all the missing people. It was an alien abduction. You'll hear that. And yet a lot of folks who've been warned will be forced to do some serious thinking. Here's a point that says it so well. I think of times as the night draws near of an old house on a hill, of a yard all wide and grassy where the children played at will. When deep night at last came down, hushing the merry din, mother would look around and ask, are all the children in? I wonder if when those shadows fall on the last short earthly day, when we say goodbye to the world outside, all tired of our childish play, when we meet the lover of our souls who died to save us from our sin, will we hear him ask, as our mother did, are all the children in? I believe that's what our Lord Jesus will ask when he returns for his church. He'll turn to the Father and he'll ask, are all the children in? And they will be. I love the last line here in verse 17. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. You know, I can recall spending all day outside playing in the neighborhood, but there was something comforting about resting in my own house that night. This world can be a weary and fearful and painful place. But always remember, friends, this world is just temporary. Our final destination is the permanent one, and Jesus calls it paradise. I love the wonderful promise in Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verse 18 tells us, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Romans 11 verse 25 speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles. The terminology marks a turning point in God's prophetic plan. Apparently, there's a set number of Gentiles who come to Christ before God turns his attention to Israel. And that and, and it's when the last Gentile enters God's family, that's when the father will turn to his son and say, Go get them. Let's get all the children in. It always excites me to think that that one last holdout could be here this morning. If that's you, if you're the last Gentile, what in the world are you waiting on, man? You're holding up the party for the rest of us. What Jesus promises us is better than anything this world can offer. Let me close by recalling two phrases from Paul's wording here in verse 15 that I think are important. Notice first he writes, For this we say to you 
by the word of the Lord. You know, when Paul wrote his letters, I don't know how cognizant he always was that he was penning sacred scripture. You remember he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus in Troas. I would imagine that verse was probably more motivated by the cold around him than the spirit within him. It is reasonable that though Paul wrote under the inspiration of God's spirit, he wasn't always conscious of the fact, except here. For when he wrote about the rapture, he was adamant. He made a point. He said that he spoke by the word of the Lord. My point is is that the return of Jesus and the rapture of the church are big deals to God. And these doctrines need to be a big deal to us. Martin Luther used to say, there are only two days on my calendar, today and that day. And today will be far more important if we live it in the light of that day. And then notice the other statement that Paul makes in verse 15. He fully expects to participate in the rapture. That we, he includes himself, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Writing in the first half of the first century, Paul was fueled by the belief that he was living in the last days. Paul counted on being a person who would avoid death. Some folks might claim that Paul was duped or that he played the fool. This couldn't be further from the truth. It was God's intention for Paul to live as if he were in the last days, just as it is his desire for all of us to do the same. See, Harold Camping wasn't a false prophet for believing in the rapture or getting excited about it or assuming that he would experience it. He was unbiblical because he claimed to know more than Jesus and he set a date. To live a successful Christian life, we need to live every minute of every day in anticipation of the Lord's return. For it is this expectation that breeds godliness. You know, I've met Christians who were apathetic and blasé about the rapture. As if they were afraid to get up their hopes, to get their hopes up. Hey, we better get our hopes up. Hope is what helps. 1 John 3 verse 3 speaks of Jesus seeing Jesus and concludes, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The rapture is a purifying hope. I mean, what if my mother-in-law told me she was going to drop by my house sometime next Saturday? That would be awful. Talk about cruel and unusual punishment. I'd be thinking... Give me a time. Please give me something exact here so I can be ready for you. Don't just say sometime next Saturday. That's going to mess up my whole Saturday. It's going to force me to clean the house and then keep it spick and span all day. I mean, the mere possibility of my mother-in-law arriving any minute keeps me on my toes all day long. And knowing that Jesus might return at any moment has the same cleansing effect on us. If I really believe that Jesus is coming back, I'll stay focused. I'll be ready. I'll avoid the shortcuts and say no to temptation. I believe living in light of the Lord's return is crucial to any Christian's spiritual growth. 30 years ago, 
Whenever I would sign off with one of my friends, I'd usually say, see you here, there, or in the air. That was a favorite saying. It reflected the expectancy that we all possessed. My treasure was in heaven. My hope was to see Jesus. My dream was his presence. But then I got a mortgage. And I had four kids. And I started paying college tuition. And you get caught up in the here and now, and you forget about the day that you're going to get caught up in the clouds. Let's not lose our anticipation, guys. Has our love for Jesus grown cold? Have all of our friends been told? The next time you and I meet, it might really be in the air.